Hi, I'm Aditi. And I'm Brett. And this is Full Stack Food, a show about food and innovation. And hoagies. Meatball hoagies with cheese dripping down, garlic, butter on the bread toast. Ah, so good. We're starting the show hungry now, guys. I'm starving for meatball hoagies. Well, believe it or not, we have made it to our last show of the season. Woohoo! Landmark episode. I'm excited. But we've made it through a full season. We're still fighting over Doritos and everything bagels. I mean, no, we're not. We've proven universally that everything bagels are the superior bagel. Taste test. No, it's a fact. We will be debating that in perpetuity, I feel like. Well, we're already starting to work on season two already, which will be out later this year. But in the meantime, we have a really great show to end our first season today. And it's the first of two parts. Brett and Steph, our question for this show is, can we innovate our way out of global hunger? The flip side of food insecurity is food waste. And Brett and Steph, do you guys find that you end up throwing out a lot of produce that goes bad in your fridge? We are incredibly conscious about it at our house. Like I am over the top. I get really mad at myself when I have to throw something away. And and so we actually are pretty good about it. Awesome. Steph, what about you? We are not quite as good as Brett and Sarah. I would say we fall down when we get in these moods to try really creative or different produce. And we're like, oh, I'm going to cook this really interesting thing. And then it just, you know, work gets crazy and just doesn't happen. Yeah. And that happens to us too, where I have all these ambitions to cook more than I do. And then the week goes and you're so busy and you end up doing takeout more. And I'm with you, Brett, where I hate having to throw away fresh food. We're really good at eating leftovers in our house also. And so like, you know, if there's something that's left over, we will be eating that for a dinner. And that's what we're having. Well, the problem of food waste is at the heart of the company that we're looking at today. Today's episode features James Rogers, who founded Appeal when he was getting his PhD in material science. He became really intrigued with the idea that the world produces enough food to feed its population, yet so many people are faced with food insecurity, and there's so much food that also gets wasted. How could he create a material that would extend the shelf life of produce and reduce that waste? He said he became consumed with that problem and ultimately came out with a natural protective coating that keeps produce fresher longer. Guys, I met James a few years ago when I was at CNBC, and I remember thinking, why didn't I think of this idea? It seems so obvious and has such universal appeal from families out there that are throwing away food to companies. I think it's a tremendous idea. It's the science that's incredibly impressive. It's super cool. And like one of the things that's really interesting about it is like you might not even know that there is appeal on the produce you're buying, right? It might just be that you're getting longer shelf lives of your produce. And the mission-driven part of this is so compelling as well. Well, we're going to start off by taking a look at some of the stories trending in food and innovation. We're staying in the produce lane today. And to start us off, are mushrooms the new it food item? The Produce Blue Book says mushrooms are one of the top food trends in 2022. Mushrooms have fueled plant-based meats, and you're also seeing mushroom-based coffee, and Walmart is even selling mushroom-based oat milk. Who knew? That's according to Axios. Guys, first of all, I was surprised to hear there is a Produce Blue Book, but do you think that this mushroom thing is a fad or a trend that's here to stay? 
I just think it's funny that they have mushroom-based oat milk, not mushroom-based milk. Like, they had to throw, like, they took, like, a... Is it fusion? Yeah, like, what are we doing? You know, it could have just been mushroom. Like, talk about riding the wave of another huge trend of oat milk. Let's just put some mushrooms in there. I've also taken a look at several vertical farm mushroom companies where mushroom is the key outputs, and it's interesting. It can be a high-value crop. I think there is decent adoption of mushrooms as a ingredient in things, I do think it's still niche. Steph, have you had alt food items that are based in mushrooms? I haven't eaten them, but I've seen a whole bunch of pitches. Just saw a pitch this morning using mushrooms. If you think about it, like mushroom, like it's actually one of like, in its own form, one of the original alternative proteins. Like how often would you see like a portobello steak? Has been compared to the meatiness of it, right? Yeah, so it was framed as like that alt protein, even before alt proteins was like a trend or a thing. So I guess in that case, it's a trend that's lasted for a long time. I love a good portobello mushroom done well. I think it goes back to something we always talk about, which is the perception of taste and how people think things are going to taste. I'm curious about like the coffee example here, and I haven't heard of or looked into this one at all. Are they replacing the coffee bean or are they is it an additive to coffee that's adding additional health benefits to the coffee because if they're replacing the coffee bean that could be really cool well that brings me to our second story which is another coffee alternative figs it's having its own moment in the sun a product called figgy which is coffee made from 100% roasted ground figs won best in show at a midwest coffee festival last year and was also featured at the fancy food show recently fig brew makes the caffeine free coffee but it's not the only game in town coffee is another coffee company that's brewing up fig based coffee Guys, figs are delicious, but don't people drink coffee for the caffeine? That was my exact reaction. I mean, Brett Brawl here, shockingly, does not drink coffee. Me neither. <gasps> We're the most high-strung people. Two of the three people on this call do not drink coffee. That is very rare where that happened, I think. I think we're kind of outliers or just freaks of nature, Brett. I don't think either of you need more energy, necessarily. <laughs> Naturally energetic. I say that with love. High on life. I mean, like the coffee industry, we've talked a lot about like how big the protein industry is in this world. Like the coffee industry is humongous and it's expensive and the supply chain is like, you know, there's a lot of issues in the coffee supply chain. So if you can really remove the need for a bean, the coffee bean in that supply chain with another ingredient, that's cool. Well, finally, coming back to the mainstream, avocados are also making their way to kitchens across the country. Retail Brew reports that Americans' per capita avocado consumption has doubled in the past decade. We now eat an average of nine pounds of avocados every year. That demand, coupled with supply shortages, has driven avocados' prices up to record highs. Guys, where do you fall in comparison to the nine-pound average per year? love avocados. I do think that it has slowly permeated through American culture from starting with avocado toast and kind of high and brunchy sorts of restaurants. And now it's just become more of a mainstream sort of thing. There are mainstream. Yeah, right. And then the omega threes in there. I love avocados. We definitely surpass nine pounds per year. We probably eat nine pounds of avocados a month in our house. Seriously, I mean, like we get the Costco bag of avocados, you know, every other week at least. And so we eat a lot of avocados. Well, Brett, you mentioned 
the avocados from Costco, which is a great segue to talk about our guest today. He's the founder of Appeal, which produces a natural coating to extend the shelf life of produce, including avocados, and they do treat the avocados that are at Costco. Hear how James Rogers turned his idea into a billion-dollar company. On the face of it, the problem James Rogers was trying to solve as a grad student is pretty simple. How can you get produce to last longer? Once the material science PhD started digging, he found out that nature solves the problem. Fruits and vegetables already have a natural protective coating to shield them from the elements and the effects of aging. Rogers has taken that principle and used it to come out with a natural coating that extends the shelf life of produce, all in the name of reducing food waste in the global supply chain. He named his company Appeal and promptly discovered that building a company around a breakthrough solution, no matter how compelling, is hard work. For starters, developing the product took years. And then came the daunting challenge of selling it to skeptical grocers. But Rogers forged ahead. And today, Appeal, which is based in the Santa Barbara area, is worth more than $2 billion. Its retail partners include Costco and Kroger, and its investors include Katy Perry and the one and only Oprah Winfrey. Not bad for a scientist-turned-founder who grew up yearning to unlock what he calls the magic of the world around him. I remember a book that my grandma had at her house, and it was, I think it was literally called How the Stuff Works. And I remember just loving that book. And, and, and I think it turned out to be this kind of personal fascination and just how do things work? Like it, to me, a lot of the stuff around us is basically magic until you understand how it works. I also love the stuff where you, we actually don't know how it works yet. Like that people are still trying to figure that out because that's where the magic still is. So I, I think in a, in a lot of ways, this fascination of how stuff works, it's probably been a, a theme for my whole life. And so did you have a fascination with materials because you ended up studying material science? You know, I, I didn't actually know what material science was. I went to college thinking that I was going to study biomedical engineering because that was what I was really interested in. I learned about bio, going back to this thing about like magic. I remember in school taking biology class and thinking, wow, that is magic. And so I went to undergrad and they said, hey, you can study biomedical engineering, but you have to take another engineering degree with it. You can't just do biomedical engineering alone. And I remember looking through the course catalog and reading about this thing I'd never heard of, material science. I don't remember what it actually said, but the way I remember it reading was, take this class if you like to know how stuff works. <laughs> and that was like the perfect thing. And then you ended up during your PhD time doing something with solar paint. What was that all about? So I got really fascinated in, in material science and thought, wow, this is amazing to learn about kind of these fundamental building blocks of the universe and how they fit together to make different stuff. And then I got through college and I'd learned how a bunch of stuff was made, but I didn't really learn how to make anything. And so I went on to do my PhD because that's kind of how it was sold to me is oh, in your PhD, you get to learn how to use the stuff you just learned. And so I went to graduate school and I had to pick a project and kind of looked around and thought, well, I want to do something that I feel motivated by and, and feel like is important. And energy was one of those things that it just seemed really obvious to me that 
that energy was such an important problem. And if we, if we could figure out a solution to the clean energy problem, that all the other problems kind of were solved. And so there's this opportunity to work on this project during my PhD, which was how can we take materials and turn them into a paint that we could use to paint a surface and let it dry into a solar panel. That kept me in school for, I think I figured out that when I graduated, I was in the 22nd grade. Watching a lot of paint dry, right? Quite literally, yeah. Quite literally watching paint dry. I mean, it it is funny to say it out loud, but that was literally what I was doing. And then you pivoted and you came up with the idea for appeal. How did that come about? You know, it's funny because I feel like if you zoom out far enough, it's all the same thing. You know, if you zoom out far enough, appeal is also tackling the energy problem. It's just in a way. You know, I remember during my PhD thinking, wow, we're spending a lot of time trying to figure out how to generate this energy, but don't we have a problem of storing the energy too? Now, there's a lot of people working on batteries, but it certainly doesn't feel like we've got the perfect solution. Weirdly enough, I started thinking about that actually food was a type of energy storage. We didn't talk about it like that, but basically you had the factories of the plant, which were the leaves, and they were doing the energy generation, and then the energy was getting stored in the food, in the fruit. And that was a really, the start of a rabbit hole I'm still in. (laughs) And that idea just fascinated me because there were clearly examples of areas where nature had figured out how to store energy really well, something like a lemon. And there were examples where nature hadn't figured out how to store the energy very well, something like a strawberry. And that just grabbed me. That was such a just juicy problem to understand. And so let's talk a little bit about once you got on that road, how did you go about forming the company and then coming up with what I would think would be the most difficult part is the actual compound that you're going to coat the produce in? How did that all come about and how did it work? I started with it was just an idea on a napkin. And and the idea on the napkin was looking around the solutions that we were using today to keep food longer were heavy refrigeration, wrapping things in plastic, or applying these chemical fungicides to food. And, you know, back to this idea that, well, actually, there were some other examples in nature comparing to contrast between a strawberry and a lemon. Well, actually, the lemon knows something that the strawberry, the strawberry doesn't know. It's not wrapped in plastic, and it's not refrigerated, and it's not covered in a chemical pesticide. So what does it know? What is the lemon got figured out? And maybe by learning from that, we could create a solution that was taking the technology that nature had figured out and applying it to other stuff. And I learned pretty quickly that there was this amazing thing that happened when plants evolved out of water and onto land, that it actually took an evolutionary adaptation to enable that. And it was the formation of this thin polymeric coating around the outside of the plant. And so did you recreate that or did you just somehow harness that material? Well, we started in the beginning and it was all about figuring out what it was. How was nature doing this? And so we started getting fruits that lasted a really long time and looking and seeing what their peels and skins were composed of. 
And then we started looking at, at stuff that didn't last for a very long time and figuring out what their peels and skins were composed of. And I was frankly shocked to find out that actually from a composition perspective, they were made of exactly the same materials. This was when like the material scientist excitement just turned on to a new level. Because, this is when you really nerded out, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, to use a technical term. This is, this is when I really started nerding out because this is what I learned through my paint drying experience, which was how do you take the same materials and get one of them to dry into something that works and one of them to dry into something that doesn't work. Statements you don't hear very often. This is where my <laughs> paint drying experience really came in handy. I was great at watching paint dry. Every once in a while, I'll say a sentence and just smile and think, I don't know that those words have been stitched together. So you had this breakthrough moment in your research. What happened next? So there was all this kind of idea that, you know what, there was this existence proof that this worked in nature. Strawberry versus lemon. Thought experiment. Okay, this is possible. This, this works. But I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to get started. I'd never started a company before. I'd been a student my whole life. And I just thought I have to do something. And so the first thing that I did, I stayed home on a Friday night and I read an article in The New Yorker about a company that named companies. The company was called lexicon. I stayed home on Friday night and I did the exercise because I thought, well, at least I can come up with a name. I don't have a, I don't have the technology. I don't have, at least I can come up with a name. And I wrote on the sliding glass window appeal along with a couple other candidates. And I remember looking at that and going, what? That's something like that. It's appealing, right? Yeah. That's something like it was Just this idea of, it was before it was just like a really complicated lot of ideas. And then all of a sudden it was appeal. And then I, you know, I did what you do when you have a name, you can buy a domain, you can make a logo, you can make business cards. And and it, it just made it from nothing into the absolute smallest amount of something that you could possibly have, but it was something that was the start. And so at one point, after you had your company, and then you developed the technology. First of all, how long did it take for you to actually come up with the technology and the product? So at this point, it's got a name, but I'm working out of my, I set up a little lab bench in my bedroom at the time. I'm doing little side experiments at night because I'm still finishing my, my PhD work. That was late 2011, 2012, the first evidence that I had that it worked on produce was mid-2015. So how does it actually work? Like, go into, like, the details with this. Like, how does it actually work? Like, you said you've been using, like, the lemon to strawberry analogy, but, like, did you take a lemon peel and put it over a strawberry? At a molecular level, yeah. So the way it works, and it, this was a huge unlock and, and confidence-inspiring in the beginning, was I found out when I was started looking into, well okay, people are going hungry because not all food lasts forever. Why doesn't food last forever? Well, it goes bad. Okay, well, what does going bad mean? What does, what's the definition of going bad? Well, if you go one layer deeper, going bad means that the food has lost a bunch of moisture, water, and it means that it's oxidized, meaning a bunch of oxygen has gotten in. And I remember hearing that and thinking, 
wow, well, that's that's why the lemon works. The peel slows down the water from going out, and it slows down the oxygen from, from going in. And the material scientist in me, again, like, got tuned in and, and thought, ah, this is a diffusion problem. This is a, a barrier problem. If we had a barrier that we could apply to the surface of fruits and vegetables that would slow down water going out and slow down oxygen going in, and we made it out of plants, we would have found a way to use food to preserve food in the same way that nature preserves food in its most successful cases. And so that's what it does. We literally take the same materials that you eat in every bite of fruit and vegetable you eat every day, we turn them into a water-based formula, we apply that to the surface of fruits and vegetables, it dries. When it dries, those molecules arrange themselves in a way that allows us to reduce the rate that the fruit loses moisture and allows us to reduce the rate that oxygen gets inside and damages the produce. And the result is that fruits and vegetables last two, three times longer without plastic wrap, without refrigeration, without chemical pesticides. Where are you applying it in the supply chain? Like right after like it's been harvested, like at the grocery, like where does it get applied? So nature does the magic. Nature makes food. And then that food is as good as it's going to be as soon as it's harvested. And so our job is to maintain that goodness as close as possible from the time it's harvested. And so that means basically as quickly as possible after it's harvested, we apply the product. And it has so much of an impact, to your point, from a mission-driven standpoint, but also every parent who's gone to pack their kids' lunch for the next day and they look in the fridge and they see, oh, gosh, these strawberries that I just got yesterday are already bad. I remember when I heard about what you're doing, I thought, gosh, I wish I had thought of this first because it's such a pain point and a problem for so many consumers. So you come up with this and you have the technology. What do you do next? Well, what we did next was be confronted with the intuition that we had that having the technology was not going to be enough. That actually, we had to find a way to show that that technology deserved to be adopted. And when I say deserved, I mean that deliberately in the sense that if we look at the system that we operate in today, it's a capitalist system. And so we focused on waste. We started by saying, you know, we know there's waste. We all experience it, Aditi, like you're saying. You know, we throw out food at our homes. We know that waste is a problem. Let's show that time can reduce waste because that'll get us started. I'm curious, James, when you first went to market with this, what was the reaction like? Have you showed them this, but did they really believe in it? Did they think that this was useful? Was it magic to them? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, it took us a long time to figure this out. You know, it's easy to say it. It took us a long time to figure out how to actually do this. In the beginning, we we thought, you know, as naive scientists, well, obviously a piece of food that doesn't go bad is more valuable than a piece of food that does go bad. We'll go provide the technology to the people that sell food And then they'll be able to go sell it to their customers. So we thought that we would sell our product to the growers or or to the suppliers. And a lot of the early feedback that we got back was, why would we want to give our customers longer-lasting food? The garbage can is actually 
our best customer. The more food that our customers throw away, the more food that they need to buy from us. How much produce do grocery stores throw out every? Like, give us a stat on like how much produce or like fresh food or not fresh any longer. I guess do grocery stores throw away? In the United States, it's billions and billions of dollars every year in food that's just wasted, just in grocery, and that's not to mention people's homes. Globally, one point six trillion dollars in food waste happens every single year. And I know you touched upon this a little bit, but. If produce goes bad quicker, then one would think customers would go back to their grocery store and then the store ends up making more money. How do you convince those retailers then to come on board? So we, we'd heard this, right, that the garbage can's a great customer. The more the customer throws away, the more they're going to buy from us. But then we started asking ourselves, but then why don't I buy five pounds of strawberries at a time? And we realized, oh, well, well, the reason I don't buy five pounds of strawberries at a time is I actually, I have had the experience of throwing that food away and it feels awful. And what we found was that when we started communicating to shoppers that actually this produce is plant protected and going to behave better when you bring it home with you, that they actually did the opposite. They bought more. People started shifting the amount of food that they bought actually into their homes. Instead of buying one avocado, people bought three avocados. Instead of buying two oranges, they bought a bag of oranges. It meant greater sales. It meant reducing waste. And that, to me, just checks all the boxes because it's giving people more access to more nutrition with less waste. And yeah, that's just so fun to work on. At one point, did you go out for funding? And what was that process like? <laughs> In the beginning, I thought, if you have a great business, why do you need funding? You just make the product, you sell it, you put that money back in and you grow the business. Later, I realized, well, in order to create this technology, we need investment to be able to do that. So I started talking to local investors about this idea that we we could use food to preserve food and that it would solve this really important problem. They all came back and said, it sounds like a really great idea, but we don't know if it's possible. So we're not willing to invest money in, in you figuring that out. And I talked to hundreds of people and, and pretty much got, got the same response. There weren't many people willing to say, we're going to invest in your ability to invent that technology. They have to really believe in you, the material science PhD. In a student who's been studying solar paint and you're trying to explain how actually that's relevant to solving this problem. And so the solution ended up being that there was this kind of bridge and the bridge was, well, let's talk to people who are also really interested in solving this problem. And realized that there were organizations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that were really interested in finding technology solutions to solve some of the world's largest problems. And so I wrote up a two-page proposal to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation for what was called their Grand Challenges program. I sent it in and I think four months later or so, I got an email saying, congratulations, you've 
been selected for to receive a hundred thousand dollar grant from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And I remember sitting at my desk and just putting my hands up in the air and thinking, "Yes, we figured out how to get started." You cut years later, and I mean, you guys have amazing backers, big names, and among them, some celebrities like. Katy Perry and Oprah Winfrey. How did that all come about? I mean, Oprah Winfrey is in a league of her own. We know she has ties to Montecito. So does Katy Perry, actually. Did the geographic proximity help? Yeah, without question. Uh, yeah, I think people talk about success is, is, you know, half preparation and half luck. I always think about Santa Barbara as, you know, the luck. You know, that's the luck half. I think being in this community, it was just such a natural intersection, weird intersection between material science at the university, agriculture in the community, and pop culture living down the street. How did she come to hear about the work that you were doing and then get in touch with you? How did it all work? You know, I give a ton of credit to her team that are just identifying issues that are important to her and I got an email one day from our team saying, we're really interested in what you're building and uh, we'd love to learn more. And I, of course, followed up and said it's a pretty short drive from my house. <laughs> sure, I'll just come over, roll up to Montecito and... Uh, you get a peel, you get a peel, you get a peel, <laughs> you get a peel. <laughs> I was invited over for lunch one day and just shared more about what we were building and why we were building it and what our aspirations were and... I mean, did you have a slide presentation or it was just lunch and talking? Yeah, it was just, just a conversation. Were you nervous? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I think it was mostly just feeling grateful for just the opportunity to connect with someone that I respected so much for what they'd built and the way they'd done it. As that was always so important to me was, you know, not to build something that could make a bunch of money but to build something that was worth building and to actually like the how you built it, like that part mattered. And, and so I was just grateful for that opportunity. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, what is ahead for Appeal? You guys are growing, you're expanding, you're in Europe, you're in the U.S. Tell us about what's on deck. Well, the amazing thing and, and the thing I still you know, get chills when I think about is that every time we are successful with our partners, Every time our partners sell more appeal produce, appeal protected produce, we're saving natural resources. We're feeding more people. We're getting food into places of the country and places of the world that may not have had the same access to fresh produce before. And so we're continuing to do that. We're continuing to grow our partnerships, both within you know categories that we're already active in today and introducing new produce categories as well. Speaking of impact, you talk so much about the mission behind the company to eliminate food waste and food insecurity. If a mega retailer like an Amazon or a Walmart comes to you and says, look, we want to acquire Appeal, we have the supplier networks and the infrastructure to get to scale now so that you can realize that mission even faster, what's to prevent you from going that route? There's so much that needs to get built and we are actually doing this today in partnership with the largest grocers in the world. And the amazing thing has been that they actually are excited about the help in their supply chains. We think about the world's largest grocers, 
and they have that all important relationship with their shoppers. You know, the shoppers trust them, but their supply chains are operated by someone else. If we ever got to the point where we were doing the same kind of work, we'd have the conversation. But today, I think the reason it's so exciting and important and why I love working on it so much is it it's work that hasn't been done yet. It's work that needs to happen. And, and so as long as that's still true, this is still you know exactly how I want to be spending my time and attention. All right, James, this is the pressure portion of the interview. You get one word answers and only one word answers. We're going to do rapid fire. Okay. If a peel worked on something other than food, what would you put it on? Skin. I was thinking skin. I was going to guess you'd gone skin. I might have gone like just humans in general, like keep humans fresh, <laughs> you know, like so you don't get old. That's where my brain went also. So we're, you're doing okay so far. You're, I'll give you one for one. How old is the oldest piece of produce that you've ever eaten? 105 days. <laughs> what was it? It was a mandarin. 105 day old mandarin. I have not eaten 105 day old mandarin. The reason I ate it is I thought I was probably the person to eat the oldest mandarin. It was, well, James, one word answers. But on a counter. Like it wasn't in a refrigerator. It was like sitting on the counter for 105 days. Who's your favorite magician? Oh, I can't, what's his name? Uh, David Blaine. David Blaine. That's the one. Thank you. Sorry. That's two words and I couldn't think of it right away, but him for sure. What about Penn and Teller? Oh, that's a good one, too. That's that's three <laughs> words, Steph. You've been eliminated, Steph, from the game. I have a six-year-old and an eight-year-old. Aditi has some kids. I don't know if you have any kids, James. Do you have kids? Uh, no, I don't. Not yet. Okay. That wasn't the question. But if you have a six- and eight-year-old, <laughs> you are well aware that beans are the magical fruit. What is actually the magical fruit? Mangoes. I like it. It's a good answer. I thought you were going to say lemons is what my guess was, just because you talked a lot about lemons early on. You solve mangoes, you solve world hunger. That's a really good one. What activity is more boring than literally watching paint dry vacuuming i kind of like vacuuming it's true i because you I, you get a sense of accomplishment you start you're done you can see the little lines in the carpet same reason i like mowing lawns i really like watching paint dry so you know i well, i don't know what you're trying to say you have said some things in this interview james i never thought i would hear any come out of anybody's <laughs> mouth i really like watching paint dry is one of them that's a good one all right last one what's harder to do Build a company or get a PhD? Build a company. That's all I got. Thanks for putting up with me. Full Stack Food is brought to you by the Techstars Farm to Fork Accelerator. Techstars Farm to Fork is a mentorship-driven accelerator program working with the startups that are focused on the food value chain from on-farm to supply chain, manufacturing, all the way to the future of food retail. We provide mentorship, capital, and a network that can help take your startup from where you are today and accelerate it to its next level. If you're an early stage tech founder that has applications into the food system, reach out today to learn more about our program. Here's this week's Startup Corner. Today I'm here with Michael Schaefer, CEO and founder of the Farm Post app. Michael, what's the problem that you're solving? Probably the major problem we're solving with Farm Post is communication between a farm owner and a local employee. Previous methods weren't working, such as Craigslist and social medias and just even you know, pull tabs at gas stations. Yeah, labor is definitely an issue across the entire food value chain. How are you solving this problem? So we're solving this problem by creating a platform that both users can basically connect on. Farmers can go onto our app or the website, post a job, takes them less than two or three minutes to actually have this job posted. And then we send an alert out to all of our local farmhands or registered users in the area, letting them know that there is a new position or opportunity. 
what's the big vision here? How are you going to take over the world? The big vision here is uh, just the entrepreneurial mindset. There's a need in a market providing that solution, creating opportunity. The big thing here is that, you know, ag labor is the leading problem in the United States, but it's not just the United States. It's global and it's starting to hit every market and not just agriculture. So we're going to keep actively trying to solve these problems and, you know, create solutions. Today, I'm here with Drew Knight, CEO and co-founder of Bibe. Drew, what's the problem that you're solving at Bibe? At Bibe, it actually started with a personal problem at my last job. We really want to figure out how to put beer, wine, spirit, supplier-funded promotions directly inside retail apps. Got it. And how did that start from your like last role? Like, Why was that a problem? Did you have like a bunch of stuff in your trunk or something? Yes. So the issue is the way that beer, wine, spirits works is they're unique laws in every market. And so what we had to do is navigate the unique limitations that each state had for beer, wine, spirits and find a way to productize those through technology. How are you solving that problem? So because retailers have to actually are prohibited in most markets from actually processing supplier funded promotions, that's why you as a consumer oftentimes will see mail-in rebates or not instant coupons and you'll find some quirky no purchase necessary limitations. And so what we actually did was like feed on the street. We went to most regulators, met with them, shared our business model, shared what we were trying to do. And we baked in their feedback directly into product requirements. That's cool. How are you going to take over the world? Ah, it's a great question. (laughs) I believe there's a fundamental shift going on with internet and digital marketing right now. So as you think about the traditional business model of direct-to-consumer marketing, it's all been ad-based, click-through business models. I think there's going to be a fundamental shift in marketing where it is going to be tied more towards the transaction than just click-through. So going back to our original question, can we innovate our way out of global hunger, guys? We need to. And I don't know that we're ever going to end global hunger, right? Like that, I mean, there's is unfortunately probably always going to be some sentiment of it, but we do need to be able to feed the growing population. And one way to do that, as he mentioned, is reduce the waste throughout the supply chain. Steph? I think what Brett said, the nail on the head is, is we need to, we have to innovate. Whether or not we solve it completely, that's what we're left with, right? It's a huge and growing problem. And to do something, we're going to see we're going to see that change come from entrepreneurs. I mean, Brett, your favorite saying? No one can affect change on this world faster than an entrepreneur can. And I think that's true. And, and we're going to see how um, all this new innovation attention affects the food world. And it's interesting how many different types of companies are trying to tackle this problem, right? From a company like Appeal to even Plenty, whom we interviewed earlier in this podcast, I think episode two, we're building vertical farms in different parts of the world that struggle with food production, right? So there's so many ways to kind of dive into this problem. Yeah, the sustainability of the food system is on the tip of everybody's tongue right now. Anybody in the food space, from the large enterprises to to small startups and entrepreneurs, which gives us a lot of great opportunities to talk to more and more founders as we approach season two. It's been a great one, guys, and we'll see you back here for season two. Full Stack Food, rate, subscribe, follow. See you later this year.